0: Welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the Biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world today is Monday, January 8th. We have a spectacular show for all of you listeners today as I am joined by my first guest of 2024. It is our dear friend, returning champion and founder of Tennis Abstract, Jeff Sackman, joining me to help temper some of my biggest overreactions from week number one of the new season. Now, there were so many fantastic storylines throughout the course of the first week. And if you missed any, you can catch up on all of them, of course, by listening to our episodes from throughout the week here on this podcast feed. But I wanted to discuss some of the biggest themes, my biggest overreactions, dare I say, from week number one on today's show. And I could think of no better man to help me cloud my takes in metrics than the man behind them all at Tennis Abstract, Jeff Sackman. So that is the conversation we have for all of you listeners today. I am certain it is one that you are going to enjoy, of course. Quickly, before we get to it, a thank you to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their support of this podcast. It's what allows us to make this a daily show allows us to keep you fans, in our opinion, hopefully the most well-informed, best educated fans in the business. And of course, they also provide the best equipment at the best prices, all in one location, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Also, as always, I'll ask, like, rate, subscribe, review, share not only this podcast, but the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, and our Crack Rackets YouTube channel with your friends. A thank you, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who makes all of our content possible. With that said, Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Tennis Abstract founder and our dear friend offering overreactions to week number one. It's the one and only Jeff Sackman. Joining us on the podcast once again today to perhaps help temper some of my overreactions to week one of the 2024 season is a man who has to be described as a returning champion to this podcast. At this point, of course, a man whose work, dare I say, sets the foundation. For just about every episode, as he, of course, is the founder of Tennis Abstract, now writer of the heavy Top Spin blog, and dare I say, Crack Rackets international correspondent, it's our dear friend, Jeff Sackman, joining us once again. Jeff, welcome back to the show. First week of a new year in the books. You overwhelmed by the tennis yet? How are you feeling? I'm not as overwhelmed by the tennis as I was by the intro, but it's pretty <laughs> exciting stuff. But I mean, all intro tennis, the whole deal. It's it's been a great week. Yeah, I mean, we got a thirty minute warm up to this podcast as well that no one's going to get to hear. But uh, I got you. Got to gotta save that as a bonus. That's the Patreon members that they but, get the bonus. <laughs> Do you think they'd like my impression of dodgeball? Because I think I could go from start to finish. I think that's what bonus episodes are all about.
1: Anna Mitrich, Mitrich and I did a, a podcast episode once and we literally talked for 30 minutes about diacritics in, in like Eastern European languages, which I mean I know nothing about. I was just asking her questions. But 30 minutes of that, I I can't believe we didn't record it. I mean, that that's that's gold.
0: Yeah, one of my running bits on this show, or at least it's just a fact, whenever I meet people in person, that I always, for some reason, go, wow, you're taller than I thought you'd be, to which I'm always like, I don't know what you expected, but thanks. Um, in my head, though, I should be Vince Vaughn's height. Like, I think I would be perfectly funny at 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, and I am not 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. I still sneak in, you know, 6'2", solid height for my degree of humor. But man, if I was just four inches taller, I think I would be funnier. Is Vince Vaughn 6'5"? I think so. He's huge. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Larger than life comedian in my life as you, well. A lot of good movies. Are you a Gary Goldman fan, the stand-up? Fan would be a stretch. Am I familiar with some of his work? You know, he pops up on the YouTube shorts.
1: Okay. His his routine of, of how the states got their abbreviations is like five minutes <laughs> of brilliance. It's... There's no stand-up bit better than that. I haven't listened to a ton of his stuff, but that is brilliant. But he's also, I think he's 6'6", and he's he's the opposite of Vince Vaughn. He looks a little awkward. Like, he actually doesn't want to really be 6'6", I don't think. It's a funny vibe for a stand-up to have.
0: I'm going to need you to send me that clip because a bit I do for my younger brother, which he now does for his college roommates, and I went and visited him for his 21st birthday. I don't think he was exp- – I mean, they didn't realize I was going to be at the house – they started getting into one of the bits with Nick and I <laughs> caught him red-handed stealing what I used to do with him. And I was like, "Dude, are you at least going to cite me at the end of that? I used to do this bit cuz he had this piece of art above his work that was a map of the United uh, above his bed that was a map of the United States plus all the presidents surrounding the map. So, I used to do like a little 30-second impression of what that president accomplished during their time in history." And he was now doing that with his roommates. And I was like, "Dude, you're not going to at least cite your sources, Um, and so abbreviations of states, like, I'm going to be doing that for Nicholas the moment I see the video. So, Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, I mean, talk about again. This is where I would start to do my, honestly, not much. Like, we kind of struggled <laughs> post-Civil War. We're kind of figuring some stuff out. Like, did I accomplish much? No, but I'm um, the last Rutherford B. you're going to discuss. Like, I was a dying breed, and so then I'd kind of move on to the next one. You know, Buchanan, we always had some fun with because, you know, he's like, I'm really trying to hold it together, guys. Like, we need to compromise, okay? Otherwise, it's all going to fall apart. Um, and uh-huh. just, again, I'd get him... Yeah, and and like, this this is just
1: enough actual historical content, to make <laughs> it, but not not too much that it isn't funny, but just enough to show you actually know what you're talking
0: That's about. That's what I'm saying is, look, he was like 11 years old. I wasn't trying to overwhelm him with like, let's get into the specific of this compromise. I was like, I just want you to know here's a rough timeline so that you're prepared to learn about all these eras of history. As he got older, we did get a little bit more specific with some of the bits, but we'll save that, as you mentioned, for the Patreon podcast. Anyways, this is what Jeff and I have been Doing for the last 30 minutes. I promise we're gonna start talking tennis moving forward. I do though, before we get there, want to bring up the fact that you're back in the real world. And what I mean by that is over the past few years, you have obviously been writing some fantastic series for your website, Tennis Abstract, whether it started with the Tennis 128 back in 2022, of course, the Redux of 1973 last year, both fantastic series still available on your website. I highly recommend anyone with some free time remaining, go check those out or just read them periodically throughout the tennis year as I think they're all pieces that age extraordinarily well. You started something new, though. You wanted to come back to us, cover some modern tennis. So I know you're launching this heavy topspin blog. Talk about it for our listeners, what they can expect, because I know you've, I think you're three pieces into the year. Hubi, Kerber, Dimitrov, Runa. I've loved all three. Talk to me about what we can expect.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean the the heavy top spin blog has been there for something like twelve years, but it's been it's served various purposes over the years. And i I finally decided, you know, I'm yeah I'm coming back to the present and haven't done a lot of hardcore analytics in the last couple of years for tennis. And I have the match charting project. I and a bunch of collaborators have amassed shot by shot details on almost thirteen thousand matches. And I mean it's just this incredible, unprecedented data resource. And that's, that's not all the data there is, but I really haven't exploited that as much as I'd like to. So one of the things I've always wanted to do is dig into as much as I can, as many players as possible. I mean, what I think, what I think you do a really fantastic job of that a lot of people don't is the idea that every player on the tour, and for you, it's like down to division three, but for me, it's at least down to the top 150 or something. Every player is interesting. They're all unique they're all a good story. And I'm not talking about like whether they had a mother who was an orphan or this or that. I mean, like on the court, what do they do on the court? If you think about the big team sports, Think about if you're a baseball fan how many baseball players can you name how many baseball players can you say something unique about like I, I read some tweet by a baseball guy talking about some outfielder who's a free agent now who's like an otherworldly defender i'm like this guy might not even be a starter next year so he's like what the 892nd best baseball player in the world right now and we're tweeting about him and this amazing thing he does and i would say i would i'm kind of challenging myself to say like okay there's all these tennis players we never talk about. And for a lot of us, that list starts at like number seven in the world. And we need to talk about those people and we need to find interesting things to say about them. And it's not too much of a stretch to, you know, write something about Hubie Herkotch or Angelique Kerber, of course. But I would say you can go down the list, down the top 100, maybe even deeper and find something interesting about them. And that's one of the things I'd like to try to do in addition to, you know, digging deeper into the the, the names we all know of.
0: Yeah. And I'm looking forward to reading again, whatever it is you decide to write about, because you do dive into the stats. And again, just I always enjoy the premise you take for each article. Your article about Hoobie in particular, I think there was a line in there that it was something about, the dis- this is something that should we should have more tennis discourse about, three set records. I was like, I think I ask you about three set records every time you're on this show. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you're Nick ruskin me. You're stealing my bit, Jeff. Um, no, well, no, I'm answering your question. Yeah. That, that
1: was, that, no, I'm serious. That's why it was in my notebook. Is you asked me, I forget what exactly you asked me, but you asked me, like, what's it, what is a good three-set record? How do we know what a good three-set record is? So, like, Bam. We've got an answer now.
0: Yeah, I think it was like 58% was the standard, and he was at 70. And honestly, the person I steal it from, i do not uh, you're not – we talked about this before the show, so it is leaking over into the podcast. Um, you t- uh, Bill Barnwell writes about the NFL for ESPN, and he always does his preseason, who's going to regress from their record last year, who's going to move forward from the uh, record the year before. And he always talks about luck in one-score games. Like if you were really good in games decided by a touchdown or less – it's very likely you're going to regress because that average is always around 50%. And that's the equivalent of a three-set match or a deciding set record. And so, again, obviously, I was being a little facetious there. I was fascinated that you wrote about it. I was thrilled to finally get a number there. And so, again, listeners are going to hear that 58% mark from me throughout the course of the year as we start to build up a bigger sample size of matches. And, again, you should be reading this heavy topspin. Great name. Where did it come from, by the way? What was the inspiration? Uh I hit with a lot of topspin. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> okay. there's, there's not that many tennis phrases. Yeah. Like, I know there, there's a, Wiki, a Wikipedia page with a list of tennis, uh, with the list of like, yeah, tennis phrases. And I mean, 90% of them you'd never name a site or a blog after. Uh, and then the rest are taken or they're just kind of dumb. So, yeah, I got heavy topspin. I don't know if it's even good or not, but I do hit with a lot of topspin. And, and I just, I had this friend I used to play with who'd introduced me to her friends and be like, yeah, Jeff hits with heavy, heavy topspin. She had a Brazilian accent that I can't do that made it funnier. But like <laughs> the fact that that's, is that the number one thing people should know about me? This person who you, <laughs> who you work with, who's never played tennis? Like, yeah, he hits with heavy, heavy topspin. Like, okay. Yeah, that's.
0: That's it tells my me, I'll tell you what, It tells me everything I need to know about you. Uh, that and, again, your fondness for Potbelly Oatmeal Chocolate Chip Cookies, something we share. These are all good facts to learn, Jeff, uh, that I think our listeners will enjoy as well. And hopefully we'll have you on this show more frequently this year to discuss whatever it is you're writing about. That said – Let's now talk about some week one overreactions. I sent you a list of topics beforehand. Uh, Obviously, I want to get to today. And for listeners who are looking for just straight recaps of the matches we saw Sunday, I would ask you to tune into yesterday's mini break podcast alongside of this one. I want to get a little bit more broad uh, with the topics we're discussing today as opposed to just specific week one overreaction, but they are certainly inspired by that. And the place I want to start is a guy I think we discussed the last time I had you on this show, a guy I've been talking about for the last four months, just beating this drum of he might be playing the best tennis of his career. And no, it's not a guy in his early 20s on the ascension. It's a guy who we hadn't seen win a title for six years. But obviously, first week of 2024, 32-year-old Grigor Dimitrov snaps that streak in Brisbane. And was it the most arduous draw? It was not. He didn't face a top 50 player, excuse me, top 40 player, top 30 player, top 25 player, however it is you want to go. Didn't face a serious top 20 guy until the final when he faced Runa. And yet, you know, again, during this stretch, Dimitrov just broken twice throughout the course of the event. Those two times came in his opening match against Andy Murray, who obviously, as I was saying that last sentence, I realized I slighted. I tried to take it back. I couldn't do it successfully. Apologies, Murray fans out there of whom I'm amongst. But he got broken twice. They both came in his first match. He fought off the next 14 break points that he faced. He didn't drop a set from round two onwards And it's not just this run for Grigor Dimitrov. It's been this level now for six months consecutively. I know I tweeted that out last week, but just to reiterate this point, you look for Grigor Dimitrov. Since he made that final in Geneva at the end of May, he's been a top eight guy, 36 and 12 overall, 75% win percentage. His 86.2% hold percentage, that'd be a top 10 number. His 25.4 break percentage, that'd be a top 10 number. He's been a top 10 club guy for six months now consecutively. He's now, I believe it's 10 and 9 against top 20 opponents during this stretch of time. Maybe even more impressive, 7 and 7 against the top 10 during this stretch of time. I think if you look last year, there were fewer than 10 guys who racked up 7 plus top 10 victories throughout the course of the year. That's what he's done from May onwards, Jeff, and we can get into some past season comparisons, but I'm curious. I know you wrote about Grigor, his match against Runa, and specific, uh, specifically in the Heavy Top Spin blog. Am I crazy for thinking he's at least flirting with peak levels of his career right now?
1: Yeah. No, I yes, I agree. No, I don't think you're crazy for thinking that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think the difference between him now and him six plus years ago, or going back to the the baby fed years is that he's, he's steady. Like if you think about our stereotype of who Dimitrov was in the early years, he was flashy. He, I mean, he not only had the Federer backhand, he, I mean, he just had a little, he had that flair. And when you're 21 or 22 and you have that flair, then people dream big. Right. So I mean, back then it was all potential and people weren't counting the backhand against him. He had a big serve, if not like a, a, a tool leading serve, the tools were all there, maybe a little inconsistent. Maybe he wasn't as good as he looked because he certainly looked good. Um, but I think now in a way that that's reversed, like he's, he still looks good. None of those shots are gone, but he's so steady. That's what struck me about the match in in Brisbane is there wasn't much he did that made you think, holy crap, that guy's good. I mean, it was all solid. He had some big serves. He he was smart when he came in. He put away some bollies. But that there wasn't much like that. He played good defense. He played smart tactical tennis against Runa. And... That was good enough. I mean, he, he according to my count, I don't know what the official numbers were. He committed 10 unforced errors, Runa's 29. I mean, it, if you can get through a match like that, over two hours, committing 10 unforced errors, then you're probably going to end up winning it. And this is not, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, where do I think Grigor Dimitrov is going to be? What kind of player do I think he's going to be in 10 years? I wouldn't have said he'd be like the... The crafty, steady veteran who'd, who'd pick up wins against the brash youngsters who you know, don't have a clear game plan. But that's, that's where I think he is. We talked last time about like, the, the state of flux around number five. And to me, like after the big four era, number five was always the guy who managed to be steady enough. And for a long time, that was David Ferrer. And it feels weird to compare Dimitrov to David Ferrer because Ferrer is such a, a clay court guy and Dimitrov is not. But in a way, it's similar. If you can imagine a hard court first, David Ferrer, I feel like that's the game Dimitrov is playing
0: now. Yeah, uh, all I think fair arguments. And, you know, again, you kind of wrote about it. He just picks his spots better. Like he is more efficient in maneuvering his plus one game. You saw that against Runa, who it felt like anytime Runa popped anything up, Dimitrov was on top of that ball. It felt like whether it was in the semifinals in particular against Thompson, but certainly in the final as well, he's able to bait you into his patterns. You think when he gets you stretched on an on-the-run forehand, okay, just pop that ball up high, up the line, give Dimitrov a high one-handed backhand to deal with, and he's just driving through that backhand cross so well. Again, he's baiting you into trying to test that shot. I think he's supplanted Roberto Bautista Agu as the best mortal on-the-run forehand we have in the men's game right now. And I know that's, again, in uh, a subjective, dare I say, category, but he is just moving as well as he has ever moved. And Again, look, I, I went and ran the numbers. I went back and compared to stretches like this we've seen from Dimitrov in his career before. I think there's two seasons you would point to. You'd go back to his age 23 season, 2014. He goes 50 and 18 overall that year. His hold percentage was higher overall, 86.5. His break percentage a little bit lower at 22.2, but he wasn't as good against elite competition. He goes 4-9 and nine against the top 10. Again, that's compared to 7-7 seven and seven right now. 9-10 and 10 against the top 20 versus the 10 and nine now I think objectively you'd say he's probably been better over these past six months 2017 is where the comparison starts to get a little bit interesting because that season he goes 49 and 19 overall against 72 percent win percentage compared to the 75 he's run these last six months goes eight and five against the top 10 that year It's pretty good obviously highlighted by his victory at the tour finals but again it's worth noting that eight and five record inflated by two victories over gofen and a win over jack sock at that atp tour finals so again check the numbers you got to get some context before just looking at that surface value 14 and 9 against top 20 opponents hold percentage was a little bit higher, break percentage was a little bit lower, but it's worth noting his break percentage was 5% better against top 10 opponents in 2017 than it is right now. I just think he's he's more efficient as like he doesn't mess around perhaps with his athleticism the way he could have in 2017 but he's just not doing that anymore. He's hitting the chip when he needs to, he's coming over the top of the back end when he needs to. He's pressing forward whenever possible. He's just more decisive at this point of his career and I don't think his athleticism has been compromised to the point where like that's still not a a feature of his game, one of his strongest traits. And so Again, it's eye test wise, the numbers are pretty similar. I think he's more efficient in his game style. I like this version of Dimitrov better even if you want to say he was a hair more athletic back then.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point that he's I mean the athleticism is still there. Obviously, he's just using it in the in the vein of of executing a game plan even if it doesn't make it look flashy. Uh, the, the point that really stuck out to me, I, I wrote it about it in a slightly different context in my piece today, was Tula, or love to, Runa serving in the tie break in the first set. And Runa hit a big first serve. Dimitrov got it back. Runa hit a big cross-court forehand from the middle of the court. And Dimitrov got a racket on it. He didn't go for anything. He had to know he was like, had, what, a 10% chance of winning the point at that, at that stage. Got it back, but he not only got it back, he didn't go for anything flashy, but a big loopy forehand. In, down the middle and deep. So he put it right at Runa's feet. And my argument in my my piece today was that that was the whole game plan, was put it at Runa's feet. You don't have to go for the corners. You just have to put it in the, in, in the back of the court where he can't respond to it. And that's exactly what happened. So he came back from basically nothing with a, the, the least flashy shot imaginable, like loopy forehand right down the middle and Dimitrov missed it. Bam, love three in the tiebreak. I mean, the match wasn't over, but the first set was basically over at that point on the basis of that one kind of nothing shot
0: yeah I, I mean I thought it was also two forehands two forehand approach misses by Holger Runa one he didn't miss it in that 3-0 game he was broken but Dimitrov hits an exceptional backhand on the run pass the other one he overcooks on the break point that ultimately gives Dimitrov the game he misses it a little long a little wide. that kind of speaks to the pressure Dimitrov was putting on him having to make those margins with how well he was moving like I agree it was like four points that was the difference and I'll tell you what I feel like that's a match Grigor Dimitrov doesn't win over the last six years, that he's starting to finally get go his way. That win, the win over Medvedev, just, uh, I think, or was it Medvedev? Was it Alcarez? Whomever he beat at Paris, might have been both, honest to God. That's how well he's been playing of late. In last year at Paris, he beat Medvedev, excuse me, not Alcarez. Sorry, Carlos, but he beat Alcarez in Shanghai. That's where it was, so he did beat both over this stretch of time. The question is, and th- to finish this topic, he's seven right now in overall ELO rating. One of seven guys over that magical 2000 metric, which is kind of where the elite of the elite start when you're talking ELO. Again, in the last six months, 36-12 and 12 overall. You want to filter out just hardcourt specific success. He's 23-8 with wins over Medvedev, Alcaraz, Runa, Tsitsipas, Hercats, like, He's beating five real guys right there. His losses are to Djokovic, Zverev, like Sinner. You kind of have to be the best to beat him. And even then, he's got a shot at beating you as well. Does he have a run in him in Australia? Maybe not to win the title, but get to a final, get to a semifinal, be in that inner circle. Does he belong in that conversation right now, Jeff? Because it's been like this for six months.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, I I'm not sure. I mean, I guess
1: it, it would come down so much to the draw. Like yeah. if if he's 13 right now, so yeah. he could
0: he could end up facing Djokovic in the fourth round. Isn't that what happened in New York too? Um, he faced Vera in round 3. That fourth it was a, okay. a good four setter. I'm thinking of a different one then, um, but yeah, he, he could get Djokovic in the fourth round. He
1: could get Alcaraz in the fourth round and no, you don't bet on him for that, but there's always one semifinal. not always. There's usually one semifinalist in these draws right now who isn't from the top four. Maybe it's somebody even further out than Grigor Dimitrov, but certainly he's in the conversation for that. Like, to me, 13 is way too low. Like Elo at number seven seems exactly right to me. And I'm not just saying that because I tend to always agree with Elo. But I mean, he definitely feels right. He feels like a top eight guy. I, I hesitate to slot him much higher than that. But hey, if you're, if you're the seventh best tennis player in the world, you've got a
0: pretty good shot of landing in the semifinals of a slam. That's just how it is. I think the ELO ratings right now are spot on with the top nine on the men's side. Djokovic, one, Sinner, two, Alcarez, three, Medvedev, four. Again, you might play with the order there, but that feels like your top four. Then there's a tier of Zverev, Rublev, Dimitrov, Hercats, and I think you have to put Hour on that list after he beats Djokovic, and he's nine on the ELO rankings right now as well, and he just beat Zverev, two. Tsitsipas is your 10. I would put a big delta after that 9 to the 10 spot. But that feels like the top nine heading into this Australian Open. And, you know, again, shout out to ELO ratings, Jeff. That feels pretty darn accurate. The interesting thing about that, especially
1: with the way you, you phrased it, is the, the numbers are – Zverev, Rublev, Dimitrov are really, really close. They're within yeah. five points of each other, which is, is nothing. I mean, it's the margin of error or, or less. So, I mean, they're basically tied for number five. And then Herkach and Divan are, are quite a bit lower and actually pretty close to Tsitsipas and not too far ahead of nine eleven. at 11. But that seems right to me, too. Like, I, I would hesitate to put Dimitrov above Rublev or, or Zverev, but I mean, not that much. If, if he's below them, it's not in any meaningful way.
0: No, it, that feels like a good tier. Goes Djokovic, Sinner, Alkarez, Medvedev, tier one. Zverev, Rublev, Dimitrov, tier two. Herkot's Demon, and then I would swap Runa and Tsitsipas and put that tier three, and that's probably your top three tiers heading into this Australian Open. On the women's side is where I want to go next. And by the way, uh, let's just read these ELO ratings right now. Just the top six, because sometimes ELO does things that just makes me go, mwah, thing of beauty. Shvantec one, Goff two, Sabalenka 3, Rabacina 4, Pagula 5, Junction went at 6. Sometimes Uilo ratings just get me, Jeff, and it feels like it's speaking to me right now with her at 6 because I do think after that list of those top four and then certainly Pagula's earned that benefit of the doubt at 5, like she is the player with the next highest upside of that group heading into Australia. But I want to talk about the top of that group first because this is a discourse you and I have – had before. It's what I want to continue here, the strength of this era in women's tennis in particular. Obviously, you look over the past three to five years, there has been some parody. There is no doubt about it. The first-time champions who have emerged, you know, again, whether it's your Krejcikova runs, your Kennan runs, certainly when Svantec did it the first time, how young she was, that felt crazy. You've had a Van run, a one, Sabalenka run, all these one-time slam champions, at least thus far, over the past couple of seasons. But it just feels like things are consolidating at the top of the women's game. And some of this is eye test related. Some of it is metrics related, though. I just think we have a clear-cut top four. And this is not meant to be disrespectful to Jessica Pagula, who I think is smack dab at number five, wouldn't have anyone anyone above her or even flirting with her in that tier on the list right now. But man, have the top four looked good. And by the way, we had all of our top four women in the world competing first championship Sunday of the year. You had Iga going undefeated, most outstanding player at United Cup. She's just casually won 16 consecutive matches again. Feels like no one's even talking about it because it's like, yeah, but Iga always wins 16 matches in a row at some point in the year. Let's get that out of the way early. She's 31-4 since the end of Wimbledon. 16 in a row. I mean, again, you're unequivocal world number one right now and has all the momentum in the world heading into Australia. And yet, you know, what's the best thing we saw? Maybe the highest level from anyone in week number one has to be what Elena Robachna did to Sabalenka in that Brisbane final. 0-3. That wasn't nice. Why did she do that? Well, That
1: wasn't nice at all.
0: Hey, founders of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club recognize some club-on-club member crime, and that's what that was, and so we try to keep it in-house here. We, this is where we're okay. going to clean it up. Yeah, so if we don't address it here, it never gets addressed. Um, so, okay. you know, again, this is a come-to-Jesus moment for us. Um, and honestly, Rabakina gets to move up the neighborhood rankings. Like, she actually just sold her house to buy the bigger one with the two lots. You know the one, like, three houses down from the clubhouse? That's hers now. Um, after that 0-3 <laughs> victory. By the way, Sabalenka's first game in that match was a... A break of serve. That was just hilarious. And Arena looked so the Vika match was a joke. Like, go watch the film from that. How well she was playing is what made that Rabakina result so remarkable. And then you have Coco Goff. Casual 29-4 since the start of D.C. last year. Obviously U.S. Open champion. This is one of my overreactions to week number one as well. Get me on her bicep program because her arms are like She's just jacked now. I don't know when that happened, but just whatever she did this offseason, it worked. She had no business losing that first set against fidelina Shouldn't have dropped the set all week in Auckland, but ultimately bounces back, wins the title. Shout out to you. Your tennis abstract singles forecast had her over 60% to start the week, and it, was, yeah. and it never was in doubt. Even after losing that first set, she gets the title done. I think she looks better. I think she's hitting the ball bigger. I think she's always been as good as it gets in our game from a movement perspective. But, you know, to have that not be compromised while also seemingly being able to add pace to her ground strokes as well just feels like she has continued to get better in a way. It feels like all four of these players have continued to get better in a way that I don't know if Pagula has another gear to get to and I'm just wondering, Jeff, that was quite the monologue. I apologize. So please respond as you need. Well, I, I, think, I told you before, yeah. I don't listen
1: to many podcasts, but you're trying to you're trying to just get me here so I listen to a
0: podcast yeah. now. <laughs> Something like that. I'm trying to shake off it's been all monologues the first 7 episodes of the year. So, you're our first guest by the way. No one else I'd rather have to start I'm this still I'm yeah. still here. I'm still here. That's what I was checking on. Do we have a big four? Like that's the Elo ratings Pagula is still pretty close, but I test wise, first week wise, just broader last five six months wise. Like Pagula should be in that conversation. Results, but I just I don't know if her ceiling's as high as this. For Jeff, I think they're starting to emerge. Yeah, it sure seems that way. I
1: mean, the, the the I mean, I feel like I have to make a case against. I think the case for is better, but the, the case the case against is what you started with. Like, what, what about Zhang? Like, what if what if she comes out? I mean she could win the Australian Open. <laughs> would you be surprised? I I guess I'd be a little surprised, but I wouldn't not I would be I would be more surprised if Pagula won it than Jean, yes. no disrespect to Pagula, but I'd be I'd be more surprised by that. I'm not sure there's anybody else who I would feel that way about. Um yeah, it would be a stretch to make the case for anybody else unless you're like really really bullish on Mira Andreva right now or something <laughs> uh, but no I mean it's pretty much it, it's pretty much the big four and then the wild card is young but um uh, yeah I mean it's it, it's incredible the, the I think with Goff the it it feels like making a making a mess a little bit of this Fidelina matches. In character, and that's always what I what I worry about with her. There's never been any doubt any doubt about the athleticism, any doubt about the skills. Uh, it's always been there. I mean, I remember, I, the one time I've dug the deepest into her numbers was when she beat Sabalenka in New York, and that match she did everything right. I mean, it wasn't just an athletic triumph; it was a tactical triumph. And if she does that, then yeah, she's un, unstoppable. It's just a question of whether she can do that. That's the and that's I think what sets Ega apart, aside from you no know, topspin that no one can touch. Like she, she just does it every match, and I mean, she does it from the beginning. She doesn't make a mess of these matches at all. Like Sabalenka, we, I mean, she usually ends up winning, but I mean, she can make it interesting. Rybakina, um, same thing. Like she, I, you posted a, a stat about Fiontech's, um record sad, after losing yeah. the first set, and. In 2023, Svantec was actually not the best player on tour in, in match record after losing the first set. And that was Riva Um, I think her record, she won 47%. I forget what the actual numbers were, but she she lost one more than she won, which is incredible to go almost 50-50 for a season after losing the first set. But that means she lost a lot of sets, and a lot of them in matches that she should have put away more quickly. So, I mean... We have these question marks about Goff, Savalink, and and where there's, there's not much doubt that the skill is there, the tactics are there, the athleticism, and all three is just off the charts. But they're still a tier below Iga because Iga will, Iga will bring it from the first point to the last every match. I mean, if there, if, if she, when she doesn't, you know there's something wrong with her and she'll tell you what it is in press. Uh, but she's just, she's always there. So that what that tells me is, yes, there's a big four, but like what I was saying earlier with, with Dimitrov, like there's always going to be upsets. It just feels like the upsets won't be as surprising if if Goff, Rubakina, and Sabalenka all crash out in the fourth round. Like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not betting on that happening by any stretch. But
0: would you be really surprised? I'm not sure. I'd be really surprised. I think at this point I would be because again, Goff twenty nine and four, and her two her the two players she's lost to are Shviontek and Pagula. That's it. It's the only player she's lost to since the start of the hardcourt season last summer. And it is fascinating because it's it's the dichotomy in styles. Like you have these all-around superb, once-in-a-generation athletes who can do a little bit of everything, you know, not only defensively but obviously the pace, the topspin they play with in Fiontech and Goff. And then on the other end, you just have this epitome of power tennis that you can see with Sabalenka, with Robachna. And I don't care who was across the net from her in that Brisbane final, Robachna taking taken the racket out of that opponent's hand. And that contrast in styles that I think hopefully we get a world where one of those you know, one of Svantec Goff, one of Sabalenka Rabakana is represented in the final. And you see those two styles go head to head. I think that just sets up a remarkable run, maybe for the next three years, three to five years with these players at the top of the women's game. And so I do think there's just a difference because again, they're playing that style of tennis as well as it can be played. Like I just, Rabakina held all but once last week. Like 97.3% hold percentage for the week. It's that Opelka start to the 2022 season when he was on that ridiculous run that we talked about back then. Like, what if Rabacana does that to start her season and then she can take her swings so freely on the return like she was doing against Sabalenka, and it was just like, there's nothing Arena could do. There was nothing that could happen. Talk about depth down the center to just leave Arena with no options. On the other side, like... Shvantec, again, not only she won her last 16 matches, she's 32-2 in her last 34 sets. And those two sets were won by the play- same player, Caroline Garcia, who she then went on to beat pretty comfortably in sets two and three. You just have to play such elite power tennis to beat Shvantec right now. And to your point, you have to sustain it for two and a half hours. And I think Rabaka yeah. and Sabalenka could do that for one match, which is what makes it so fascinating Obviously, the sviantec Golf head head-to-head has been so lopsided, and that rivalry is honestly probably going to define how many slams Coco Golf ends up winning, because to her, like, she's got to be like, I am so good, and yet the better version of me happens to just be two years older than me. Like, How did this happen? Um, anyways, I could wax about this for hours on end. I will leave it here. I just think they're better than the rest of the field. That's one of my overreactions. Here's a test
1: for this belief. I, I don't have an answer to this question, but— What do you think the chances are that someone you haven't named yet
0: today um, wins a slam this year? The only wild card until Keys gets healthy, because some of the level we saw from Madison Keys, at least the highest of highs last year, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to sell all the stock yet. The only one I throw into the mix, I know she lost to Vika. But Ostapenko has looked progressively better now for 14 months and, like, more consistent for 14 consecutive months. And her match against Vika was elite power tennis as well. Now, again, the way Vika got overwhelmed by Sabalenka, do I feel like she could do that to Ostapenko as well? I do, but I've watched Ostapenko beat Iga at a major in the last 12 months. And you can say that about like two people total uh, over that stretch of time. So she would be the one wild card we haven't mentioned yet. You already mentioned Chin Wen. Obviously, I'm a huge believer in her upside moving forward. Combination of speed, athleticism, you just don't see it that in power. You don't see it that frequently. I feel like she could maybe bridge the gap of those two styles as well as anyone. No, that, that's the list for me right now. Unless, again, you said Mira Andriva, I'd go Brenda Fruvertova.
1: OK, but let's just take let's just take the top our, our top five slam contenders, which I think are the big four plus Zhang. So what, what are the give me a number? What do you think the chances are that someone outside of that top five wins a slam this year?
0: Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Is that too high? No. no, that's incredibly low. Yeah, I'm going to stick with fifteen. I would. I, I'm going to. Just for like
1: poetic, I don't know, I don't know, parallelism, I'm gonna go with 51%. <laughs> I'll just take your digits and flip them around. I don't know. I just think I agree those four should win that. Okay. But if I've learned anything from the last few years of the WTA, it's gonna be Mukova or Vondrosheva or Asapenko or maybe Pegula, maybe Andreeva, maybe Favritova. I mean, I mean Krejčíkova, maybe somebody—I'm not even thinking of Jabour. We haven't mentioned her. She's she's in the mix too. I don't know. Fifteen percent is really, really high. I know. I know my projections would would probably be well. Yeah, I'll bet my projections are above fifty percent that somebody else grabs a slam this year. I think I- that's that's probably too high. But I think I don't know. I I think it's more by nature the field is wider open than you're giving credit for.
0: Yeah, that's one of my week one overreactions is I think everyone else's window kind of shuts. I just, I'm looking at these four. I think the tennis they're playing, not only do the statistics back this up, but the eye test just tells me because Fidelino played really freaking well. Everyone had 30 minutes of playing elite tennis against Coco Goth. And then she just wore them down over the course of the next hour and pulled away from all of them. And Iga did the same thing at United Cup again. Rabakna and Sapelanka were pretty much untouched on their way to the Brisbane final. I just think those four, I see a world where, I mean, this was my day one overreaction. Iga at times has looked like, hey, all of you last season got to make your adjustment to me. This offseason, I get to make my adjustment to you. And all that power tennis you were doing like that's cute but I ain't gonna let you do that no more like I'm just gonna dominate all of you this season and I think there's a world where she racks up two to three at least slam titles like we haven't seen her win a hard court slam since the U.S. Open in 2022 I think she's getting one of them this year I think obviously the French Open runs through her I haven't seen enough on grass courts to think she's not gonna be good there the other side of the argument, Sabalenka was like five points away from winning all four slams last season, certainly competing in the finals of all four. Rabakina may not have won Australia, but she won Indian Wells and is 35-10 and 10 on hardcourt since the start of last season. Goff, 29-4 and four since the start of last summer. The only person who's been in this tier is Pagula. No one else has even sniffed it over the course of the last thirteen months, and I just think all these players are going to be better versions of themselves this year and pull away. That's my closing argument, Council.
1: Well, in, in, in setting aside everything I said, I hope you're right because it would be fantastic. It would be fantastic for me personally as a spectator. It would be fantastic for the game if we just had week after week these four or even some subset of these four playing each other constantly. I mean, I think that one of the reasons the WTA is still suffering somewhat is there was that stretch. I think it was after the, after the pandemic, in addition to the pandemic, the top players didn't play each other. Like Barty didn't play anybody good for months. Um, Shiantic didn't play that many top opponents for a long time. If we just had week in week out Shiantic, Coco, Shiantic, Sabalenka, Sabalenka, like we've had, that would be fantastic. Both to both because it'd be great tennis. It would teach us so much about them. It would interest the fans, all that stuff. But my closing argument against, Here's a stat for you. How many active players on the WTA have been number one or reached a slam final?
0: I'm going to go with 13.
1: It's actually 142. (laughs) No, I'm joking. (laughs) I I, I don't know what the number is. It feels like a lot though. To the point that like, if, if Emma Navarro wins Wimbledon, are we even surprised at this point? Yeah, well, yeah. obviously someone named Emma is going to be in the final four. That's the, <laughs> the takeaway here. Navarro, Radhikanyu, if I were better at this, I'd think of yeah. two more, but I can't think of any more. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think the, the field is just by nature so wide open. But I, yeah, it, it, I don't disagree with any arguments except the general, like, you're excited about week one. I'm excited about base rates and, you know, math <laughs> and the and what what they say is that someone we're not talking about is going to win one of these slams.
0: You know, I was thinking Emma Watson, but I was like, wait, it's Heather Watson. Emma Watson's her mind. <laughs> I was like, you got yeah, to, yeah, stick to the plan here. Um, I mean, if Emma Watson wants a Wimbledon wild card, that's, a,
1: that's quite a tongue twister. If Emma Watson wants a Wimbledon wild card. That's good. I'll I'll bet she could get one. So I, she, I mean make, have your people call
0: her people and maybe we can make this happen. If she only appears she wins Wimbledon, is that enough to be tennis 128? No. Okay. Yeah, that's Def- definitely, definitely not. 7 and 0 too small a sample size. Unless she beat like Shvientek, Sabalenka, Rebeka and Goff back to back to back to back and maybe Pagula in the third round as well, then that would be something truly funky. I don't think the math quite works there, but yeah, that uh Anyways, leaving we'll leave that to the side for now. Uh, let's get a little funky for these final categories. Again, we got a few more for you before I let you go. Let's go ranking the Ruse after week one because it was a really good week for the Ruse across the board. Of course, I'm referring to Casper Ruud, Andre Rublev, Holger Rune, and Emil Ruusuvori. Maybe the most Ruse we've had in the top fifty uh, at any point in ATP history. Some scholars are asking that question. Jeff, what I am asking you. Uh, is to rank them after week number one. You had Casper Ruud undefeated for the Netherlands. I thought he looked as good as he has looked in a year uh, throughout the course of his week one wins. Andre Rublev gets pushed a couple of times. Jerry Shung, Arthur Fee in Hong Kong, but he ultimately takes the title. Hogaruna, the final in Brisbane. Rusevori, the finalist in Hong Kong. Start wherever you'd like to start. Who impressed you most of the Ruse? Rank them.
1: Well, honorary number one is Arancha Rus, who, <laughs> who won today in Hobart, so she's off to a good start this week. Uh, but after that, I'll, I'll go Rublev, Rude, Runa, uh, and Rusovori. And to me, Rublev's just—he's our number five right now. We've talked about that the last couple of times I've been on the show. It's like he, whether he's technically number five or not, he's—he's he's the guy who's consistently there. He doesn't have Zverev's talent, athleticism, but he's got the results and. This is a perfect example. Like, he he came close to bailing out Hong Kong, but got it done, hit some big forehands, got the title, bam, there he is.
0: Will you compare him, if you have time for heavy topspin, to David Ferrer? Like, are they the same player of a different era? Is that his comp, just that like you know exactly who he is?
1: That is something I tried to quantify a really long time ago. And I think what you're getting at is it's, it's something I called, I made a stat called consistency, where the idea was like for every match, you figure out like, should you won that match, right? So if you're constantly if you're constantly both getting upset and upsetting people, that's the opposite of consistency, right? That's like Bernard Tomich or I, I don't know who the example <laughs> is. But you're investing. people people talk about the big servers like that. People always say like, oh, you'd hate to see Isner in your section of the draw. Like Isner's gonna score a bunch of upsets. In truth, he really doesn't. I mean, you probably don't wanna see Isner in your draw because it's annoying to have to play him, but you just, it's it's not really true. But that the people who like that are the inconsistent ones. The people like we think of Ferrer and you're saying Rublev are uh, the consistent ones. And I really thought I was onto something because I was thinking and along the exact lines you're thinking. And the numbers didn't turn up that much. Like, players are pretty much who they are. I mean, there's not a big difference between the guys who who look like they are super consistent and the ones who aren't. And Isner's a good example. I think Karlovich was even more extreme at that. When I did it, it was before Isner's breakthrough, maybe. And Karlovich was the guy that like, oh, he you know, took a set from so-and-so and he won all these tie breaks and blah, blah, blah. And he's seven feet tall. So you don't want to see him in the first round. But you know, normally, if you see him in the first round, you beat him. Uh, because if you're number eight in the world and he's number 40, you win. It doesn't matter if he's seven feet tall or not. You're a better tennis player than he is. Uh, so I, th- I think part of it's just just scheduling, like Ferrer was willing to just play 250 up to 250. He went to Auckland every year, I think, and I, he won them all. I think if if other if Joe Wilfred Sanga had scheduled the same way, maybe we'd be talking about him the same way. Probably not. But I mean, just to throw something out there, Burdish or somebody like that. Rublev does that too. I mean, he he racks up the 250s. He goes and plays Hamburg, which is the 250th 500 of all the 500s. So he. I don't think a lot of the guys above him schedule like that because they can't. They can't play that many matches. Zverev doesn't really schedule like that because he thinks of himself as one of the top guys. So I, I don't know. And I, I, I'm interested to run the numbers again because it's a it's a good point. There aren't there's nobody else like him, but that might be a good case for him being number 5, like of the guys who are playing this many weeks a year uh, below the masters level. Maybe he is the best one.
0: His last three seasons, 55 and 23, 51 and 20, 56 and 25. He is who he is. His whole percentage between 84.2 and 85.9. The break percentage, 23.5 to 25.1. Like, he is a perennial top 20 club guy. Not elite of the elite, but very good at everything. I always said this has been my running bit to start the year. If there was a hall of very good, it has Andre Rublev's name on it. Like he has already earned entry into that Hall of Fame, obviously. He's gonna need a little bit more down the home stretch here of his prime. But yeah, I'd have him six. Like five six. He's six right now in the ELO ratings and we mentioned it. There's five ELO points between Zverev at five, Dimitrov at seven. That feels like a tier forming into the week. I would say Casper Rude was my most impressive. And again, some of this was very much eye test related. Not that he doesn't always impress from the eye test perspective. He's a handsome young man, but he just looked fit. He, he was serving so well in wins over Greek sport. Chorich, Manorino fought off five of the six break points that he faced and didn't face any against Manorino. He was so patient in that Manorino match. Fine exchange in cross court until Manorino led something short and last year, of course, the biggest issue for him was he just didn't come into the season in shape. He was open about how he messed up his offseason scheduling. He did anything but that this offseason. And for him to win three straight set matches all over top 35 guys, I thought George was playing much more like the best version of George in their head-to-head matchup. And yet that was still a 4-1 win for Rude. I thought his level was the highest I saw from anyone. Not that Rublev didn't earn victories against a good player in Arthur Fee, against a Jerry Shang who it's when, not if, he's going to be a top 100 player, in my opinion, for the 18-year-old from China. But Rue just, there were no blips. There was no, impa- it was just, it was dominance from start to finish, the sort of three-match first week he kind of needed.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he looked great. And it, it's, yeah. like you say, he. it was so many questions early in the beginning of last season, that, or not early in the beginning, in the beginning of last season, that it's it's great to see him, playing well now i mean i guess again it comes back to how much you want to adjust based on one week and to me three matches against no elite competitions like okay good you did what you're supposed to do that's great maybe i wouldn't have expected you to win all three of those matches easily but it doesn't weigh that much and neither does rublev but i mean i came into the season with rublev ahead of rude and neither one did anything to change too much about that
0: Yeah, I guess my thing is I did not with Casper Root. I thought maybe last year was actually a more regression to the mean, and that might be more of who he's along the likes of for the rest of his career. Because, again, I'd be shocked if he made two more major finals throughout the course of his career. Like, that's a lot of major finals for a guy to make, and he made two within one season in 2022. So you knew there was always going to be some regression, but – Man, he looked like a top eight guy. Like that's what in that race for that five through eight spot again, you throw I'd throw him and Runa before I'd put it, pass heading into Australia. I think you could make an easy case for Sitsipas not being a top ten contender entering the action in Melbourne and that's part of both of the ruse. Rublev and Rude looking good. The other big number, his ace percentage through those three matches, fifteen point six. That'd be second behind Hurkacz if sustained for a full year. And last year, again, Kasparud was not even a top 10 ace percentage guy. Casper wasn't even a top 20, top 30 ace percentage guy. He was at a 3.4. Nope, that's not right. He was at 6.4% ace percentage last year. The average of a top 50 player, 8.4%. If he's going to flirt even over 10 and win that more, many more free points for himself, come on now. like That is a more complete player.
1: In fairness, if he plays the whole season on Australia, his rate probably will go up. <laughs> uh, it's a fair point. What do you think, so he's 14 in the ELO right now. What do you think his year-end ranking is?
0: I'm going to go seven. I feel like seven, uh, a pushback. He's gonna, I don't know if he makes the French Open final again, but he's going to be better on clay at the big events, and I just think he's going to be better everywhere. Like He didn't have that good of a season last year. The French Open final did so much heavy lifting. I'm going to go seven. So is he seven ahead of Dimitrov or behind Dimitrov? <sighs> Now you're just asking me questions I don't want to answer. I'm going to say ahead of Dimitrov. I don't. I need to see Dimitrov sustain this level. That's why I'm so amazed by it. I'm like I haven't seen him be this consistent in six years. Um, and so this is more like again, Casper's so young. Like and he did screw up so self-admittedly to start last year. It just is clear he's got things back on track, which is really encouraging to see. I will also say, and we didn't. We talked about the Dimitrov side of your article. I thought Holger was excellent all week long in Brisbane. Like, I know he dropped a couple of sets against non-top 25 players, but he can do a little bit of everything. And again, I thought he matched plus one prowess with Dimitrov in that final. Sans two bad forehand approaches in that three-all game he got broken. Like, that was a really good match with one break of serve that he was on the wrong end of. It was his first outdoor final of his career, Jeff. Like, that's progress for Holger Runa, who— I think I looked it up. I think it was 25 and 17 on hard courts since the start of last year. But if you take out that one in six run in the middle of the season where who knows if it was injuries, whatever else, like he's 24 and 11. Good math. That's stats for you, Jeff. You're welcome, because I know that's something you don't always focus on. Um, No, I I can't. I can't do basic addition and subtraction. That's why I learned to code. Well, <laughs> you took the tougher route. Uh, I think he's more like the twenty-four and eleven guy than the one and six guy. Like I just think, and if he's twenty-four and eleven on hard courts with how good he is on clay, that's another guy who's going to occupy a top ten, probably top eight spot ten this year.
1: Yeah, here's my case against Runa, and This is heavily based on on my reaction to the match yesterday. So I I don't disagree with much of what you said. I mean, I think he's he's definitely the twenty-four and eleven guy. Um, maybe a top 10 guy fringe of top 10. I'm not exactly sure where this all pans out, but I personally am not a tactical genius. I have no tennis coaching background. I was never a great player. I'm not at my best with tactics. I do my best with the numbers I have, but I don't watch matches and have this like magic genius stuff happening in my head, but I can see what his tactical limitations are or his tactical mistakes. I figure if I can see it, that's not a good sign anybody who actually knows tennis, like every single player and coach on tour, they all know what they are. So yes, he absolutely has tremendous gifts that he could well go undefeated against players outside the top 10. I don't see any reason why a player outside the top 10 should, should beat him. But I also don't see a lot of reasons why he would beat a player in the top 10 who plays it as intelligent intelligently against him as Dimitrov did yesterday. So I think, yeah he could easily land in the fourth round of every slam no problem at all he could win a couple more titles regardless of surface great check so maybe that makes him number nine at the end of the year maybe even higher but i think at least for a year or two he's going to hit a wall where he he's not going to make any inroads at all against the big four maybe even big six whatever we call it um i think he he can get there i i don't think there's any like there's no natural limitations to his actual game. I think it's more mental, tactical, that kind of thing, and maybe he has the right coach, and they're going to fix that quickly. But I think that takes a little bit longer, given his age and possibly returning from the in whatever injury thing he was handling last year. So I, I don't want to say I'm pessimistic, but I'm not immediately optimistic. So I'm I, I slot him in like, yeah, it, it's a tight group we've got here of Ruse, but I slot him in at number ten around. I feel like that's
0: where he is right now. Fair enough. To your point, his floor is so high. A guy who can do plans B, C, D, and E as well as anyone. I think he's come a long way in working on his serve, his plus one forehand asserting himself. I think he's a very good volleyer who sometimes makes some weird choices up there, but always seems to know what to do and can execute whatever it is he chooses to try to execute. He's also 20. Like I think the choices are going to get better. I think again, he was two missed forehands away from forcing a third set against Dimitrov in that final. And I just I, I, I'm a big fan of Holgaruna's upside moving forward. I actually think it's the highest of the three ruse we've discussed thus far just because of the totality of things he can do and to see him get so physical in that final against Dimitrov so willing to go backhands cross, like the Holgaruna backhand is excellent. But I see your point and again if and, I, and help, I agree, the up yeah. Going on upside, yeah, definitely he's your guy and for a 20-year-old you know it turns 21 this year if he finishes another season top 12 top 11 that's a really good place for him to be as he ascends towards the prime of his career do you have any strong Roussevori thoughts to complete the court Well I remember
1: one time I was in the I was in the UK and there was this uh, this advertising campaign in the airports um that was by like the finnish national i don't know not the chamber of commerce whatever they call it but the 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 slogan was does your team have a fin on it like what they're trying to say is like you know the Finns have have something they have a certain quoi, as they say in finland and (laughs) you got to have that if you're building a team of what workers i don't i don't remember any more than that but i that's all I have to say about Rusevori. If I was building a team of, of tennis players to represent Finland, I'd definitely want to fin on it. He'd be my first choice.
0: All I'm saying is you're a math guy. Watch Emil Rusevori, then write an article on how he's Yannick Sinner .85, because I think the math will check out there. Um, it's just okay. the power, the pace he can generate when he turns into something, when he leans into something. He's not quite as explosive, quite as fluid, but He's a top 50 player, certainly on hard courts. And again, that's a really strong start for him to make his second tour final, get back to the top 50 in the live rankings. Quick, small subject, but tangent, since we keep talking about top 10, top eight, this is something I wanted to approach you with. I'm out on top 10 as a metric for this anything because this feels like so incredibly hobby horsey. I can't wait to hear every well, detail. Come on. Here's the thing. What do they give you if you accomplish – if you are the ninth and the tenth ranked players in the world to end the year, what do you get into that's special from prior? Nothing. You don't get in Jeff. What do you get no, if you you're get, eight, if you're seven? You get well, into the tour finals as an alternate at number nine. That's what I'm you, saying. You, you, you normally get in as a second alternate at number no, ten. No, I'm saying like uh, you don't want to be the alternate. To the ball. You wanna be the selection (laughs) to the ball. Like nine and ten is a glory. Like, great, you're top ten. That's a great metric because ten's a round number. Top eight is where you wanna finish. You wanna be an individual qualifier. Why do we call them the tour championships? Why do we limit them to the top eight players if we're gonna glorify nine and ten as well? Like I'm just so thoroughly out on top ten finishes because you can finish ten and again not make the tour finals. Like you're playing the elite trophy event, you're the best of the losers. like, that's the, the 9 through 16 category, the JV squad. The varsity, that's the 1 through 8. That's the tour finals. That's the year-end championships. And, like, again, it gets back to this Andre Rublev metric in the Hall of Very Good versus the Hall of Fame. It should be normalized that part of that discussion and that criteria, something I know you looked at in your Tennis 128 series, how many times did you finish the year in the top eight? were you a Tour Finals qualifier? Because if you qualified for the Tour Finals and were a top eight player, you mattered throughout the majority of the season. You had either some really awesome slam runs, you do the Rublev, you're really good at the 250s and just a part of everything, three quarterfinals at the slams, just big events or week in, week out, you know, you're saying your name. Like, it's the equivalent, I I was talking about this with our friend Gil Gross, of all NBA first team or all NFL, you know, pro bowl selection or first team all pro whatever it may be like top eight finish is the tennis equivalent of you were first team excellent throughout the course of the year you made the tour finals not nine and ten top eight qualified for those tour finals i think we should normalize that being the discussion point like i'm really happy for alex diemenauer for cracking the top 10 can he be a top eight guy a tour finals participant you feel like that's a complete different ask
1: Okay. Well, I have, I have strong feelings about this as I'm sure you assumed I would have.
0: Yes.
1: Um, so in general, any artificial distinction, <laughs> I don't care about okay. again. So top eight, top 10, top 17, whatever. I, it doesn't matter. And you referred to my tennis 128 criteria. My tennis 128 criteria were a hundred percent ELO based. So there was no like, no no level at which you're in or out where like one more point would be way more valuable than not having that point. It, it's all by gradations, which is how it should be. Like I, I personally, I don't know who's in the top 10. I guess I, I know the news is about demon Arch, but I, I usually don't know who exactly is in the top 10 or top eight or anything because I'm looking at ELO. I'm looking at tiers. Like we're talking about if nine, 10 and 11 are all essentially tied within a margin of error, then I don't care who's officially nine or 10. It's the, I get that it's important to players. I get there's a, there's, is there a trophy for being in the top 10? I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But, but the point is, is that it's not a big deal. It, the, there's no, there's no level that matters that much more than any other level. On the other hand, that since the very, very beginning of tennis, I'm not sure how far back we go, but I think, I think basically to, Let's say 1900. I have a friend who'd be able to pin down the date like this. I wish i had him on speed dial here. But uh, at 125 years, let's say, the U.S., um, the U.S. LTA, the LTA in Britain, journalists around the world—they would name their top ten. Of the year and that was the honor like there was no tour finals <laughs> there was no, there was no official tour i mean it was wimbledon davis cup and then a bunch of other tournaments that you know were in flux from year to year but people cared about that being a top 10 american being a top 10 brit being a top 10 in the world that was the line that mattered there was nobody gave the tiniest whiff of a care about the difference between eight and nine so top 10 has had this I mean, just immense cachet. I mean, I can't even convey how big a deal it was to be a top tenor instead of not a top tenor for at, at least those first, let's say, 75 years or so. I mean, the, the Masters Tour Finals started happening in the in the early 70s. So that introduced this con- concept of an end-of-season thing. But even then, it wasn't as big as being an official top tenor. So I know that most, most people the fans you're trying to convince, they don't care about what tennis was real like in the amateur era, 60, 70, 125 years ago. But for more than half of big time tennis's life, top 10 is what mattered. And that's what players shot for. So do I, I personally don't care, but I totally understand that having a lingering effect where it's a big deal if some player who thought he might never make it cracks the top 10, even if he never gets to play a match at the
0: Tour Finals. I'm pretty sure top ten's also the bonus pool as well in terms of prize money. They hand out extra at the end of the year. So it does have some importance certainly for these players. Look at the broader historical context, I don't know if I can argue with your point. I care about that history. If that's the metric we've been going with forever, fine. We can stick with top 10. I'm just saying if we're going to have tour finals and we're going to say these were your eight best players for the year – That should be a metric we at least count in the modern era. Since it's existed, top eight finishes should be the category and it should be normalized that, hey, you made the tour finals. Like you are first team all tennis here in 2020 whatever season or – yeah, I just – again, yeah, please. Go ahead. Yeah, one more thing.
1: So in favor of the top ten in the top eight instead of the top eight. So looking at the ELO range right now, we were talking about tiers before. Right now, Herkaj, Diminar, and Sitsipas are eight, nine, 10. Uh-huh. And there's actually, this is great. I, this, I couldn't ask for a better illustration. <laughs> eight and nine are Herkaj and Diminar. They are separated by one tenth of an ELO point, point. Uh-huh. One tenth. And, and Sitsipas is pretty close behind them too, like eight points behind. So there's not much of a difference. There's not a, there's, you, we think of it as a huge gap between number one and number 10, but historically again, not a big gap. If you go back to like who was number eight or number ten when Bill Tilden was at his peak, I guarantee you haven't heard of that guy. Nobody is listening. Has heard of that guy. Maybe you've heard of number four, or number five. You haven't heard of number ten from that year. Uh, whereas, of course, the number ten player right now is very much a factor week in week out. So, if top ten was as big a deal as it was back when it was, then and even though the top the number ten, or number eight player was so marginal compared to the top few. If that was a big deal, then it can be a big deal now. We can we can make a little more room, even if
0: those guys sometimes miss the tour finals. Alright, fair enough. I guess that's where we can leave it for now. I'm, I'm, I, I mean, again, do I feel too strongly about this? No, but I'm all for normalizing top eight as a discourse talking point. I, it seems like that's a fight I'm still going to have to continue to fight. For now, I'll put that to the side. Last three for you here, and again, these are just some overreactions, some fun things for us to wrap up week number one discussion. Is Brenda Fruvertova the future? That's what I have as the bullet point in our outline. And obviously for those that didn't get to see the 16-year-old play in Auckland, the first 30 minutes, she was excellent. She was playing Coco Goff even. Ultimately, Goff able to win the final nine games of the match, 6-3-6, love Goff, takes it. But the aggression she played with, the ease of the technique, you look for Brenda Fruvertova now overall in her career. And again, it's primarily at the ITF level. Let's be clear. But for her career, she is now 102 and 19. 16 years old. 102 and 19. 52 and 9 over her last 52 weeks of play. Now, just tour level specific results between qualifying main draw matches 13 and 9 overall. Again, record against the top 100. She's 1 and 8 overall, which maybe that's the number you want to turn to right now. But again, still just 16 years old. Here's what I'm saying. I went back and looked at the numbers because that's what I like to do. Just for some comparison points of some similar players to this point in their careers. And you look at someone like 16-year-old Mira Andreeva. She was, I believe, 75 and 18 overall. uh, Excuse me. She's 78 and 19 overall in her career. 25 and 10 at the tour level. So ridiculous. 53 and 9 at the ITF level. I'm just saying... Mira Andreeva, uh, Brenda Fruvertova, not the uh, WTA tour-level success, but not far off from an ITF standpoint. You look for Iga Swiatek; she went 52 and 10 overall at the ITF level before playing her full full season, first full season of tour-level action, where she went 33 and 17. Again, that's compared to Andriva's 25 and 10. You can't compare to Coco Goff because she was just thrown to the wolves right away and playing entirely tour level action. But you can compare to a Clara Tawson who went 104 and 30 during this time stretch of her career at the ITF level. Here's what I'm saying. If you look at that ITF level success, Jeff, that's the caliber of teenage success Brenda Fruvertova is flirting with. Are we not talking about her enough?
1: I think we're talking about her (laughs) (laughs) enough. I mean, I'll answer your question with a question. By the time Favudeva reaches her peak, uh, will we have achieved the singularity, and if so, what does that mean for professional tennis?
0: That's an excellent question. The answer is yes on all fronts. This is just one of my favorite. By 2030, (laughs) when we start the 2030 season six years from now, she will be 22. So She will not even be close to her prime by the end of this decade. Her technique, though, is so, so good. And again, it's just it's the degree of ITF level success she's already had so early in her career. It's just like if she is one of those top 50 players. You know, last year we had a fruit in the round of 16. It was Linda. This year could be Brenda. Like I do think her level is that high already at its peak. The question is, can she sustain that level for long enough? The answer is not yet, but she's 16 years old. Give her a decade. It'll look good
1: yeah i mean and i have to say being your point of devil's advocate for today it might look good or it might not like yeah, what sure. i anyone under the age of about 21 you've got to ask the question No, you can't answer this question but you have to ask it are they peaking now there are players who peak at 16 I and mean, they might not be their best as good a tennis players will ever be but they might be as good relative to their age as 16 than they'll ever be so ego was not i mean ego was still getting better faster than her peers so Ego's peak is probably right now her peak was not when she was 16 or 17 or 18 um so nicole vydasova her peak was when she was 15 or 16 you can go down go down the list of historical teenage greats so i don't know how to pick which one is which i think some of it's just mental some of it's in their background doesn't show up on court at all some of it does show up on court but with a 16 year old she's in the GOAT discussion, as you like to say. She's also in the, will anyone remember her name in three years discussion? I hope not, probably not. But I mean, maybe there's about the same probability of both, which both are above zero.
0: Not the record show, not eliminated from the GOAT discussion. It's not that she's in the GOAT discussion, that she's not eliminated from it yet. Nevertheless, point taken, certainly a name to put on the radar. Brenda Fruvertova closing in on a top 100 debut. Penultimate topic. You wrote about Angelique Kerper. Has the game passed her by? Obviously, we got to see her play at United Cup. Does earn a lone victory against Isla Tomjanovic, a fun three set match. But, you know, again, was able to push some opponents. Was tough for her to get over the finish line. I don't want to step entirely on the article, but what was the impetus for writing it, and what you see in week one?
1: Well, I think I watched the. I started by watching the Caroline Garcia match, uh, and I gotta dig more into the Caroline Garcia numbers. I've been just fascinated by her transition into becoming just the maniac kamikaze player of the WTA tour. I mean, I. I, I always am saying in these conversations that such and such a player should just go all in on whatever they do well. And no one actually does it except she did. She yeah. went like beyond all in. It's incredible. I love watching her because you just, I, whenever, whenever I haven't watched her for a few months, I don't really believe she's become what she now is, but she is, it's just, it's wild. And that really put Kerber's game in relief that Kerber, she's not a pusher. She's a counter counter puncher, but she's a, a pretty softballing counterpuncher puncher. The, the key number for me from that article was I, I figured out for every player, what the average shot number was when they hit their winners. So if you, if you play short rallies and hit a lot of aces and return winners, it's going to be low. So Sabalenka, Serena are like 3.3 or something is their average shot number of their winners. Um, uh, the highest of anyone on tour is I think Kazakina, who is 5.1 Kerber was 4.9. So that means her average winner is happening on the fifth shot of the rally. Now, the average rally is now like 4.3 shots. So the average rally isn't long enough for Kerber to hit a winner, and it's getting shorter. It's gotten like 0.3 or 0.4 shots shorter since Kerber's peak season of 2016. So I mean, she was, she was beating the odds then, but she'd have to beat the odds even more now, plus the fact that she's turning 36. She's coming, coming back from a long layoff. She's got other priorities since I've heard say that parents think about their children occasionally. (laughs) There's not a lot of reasons for optimism. I mean, she's fantastic. None of this is going to take away from her career accomplishments, but I think there are Kerber fans who really got excited about her comeback in the sense that we're going to see some of the old Kerber magic. And on a point by point, Mesa, sure, yeah. I mean, she gets she hit some great shots in the United Cup, but Overall, like I'd say, playing close match with Isla Tomljanovic is is probably about where she's at right now, and I don't, I find it hard to imagine her doing much better than that on this comeback.
0: The statistic was perfectly put. She's a counterpuncher, and I just wonder if some of the punches she's going to be taking now might be too big from some of her opponents, certainly from the elite of the elite competition she'll face if matched up against them. Yeah, still physically, I mean, in and out of corners as fast as anyone can still come up with magic, absolutely, but the second serve is tough, and just life's not going to be on her terms. We'll see how she responds. But I thought top 50 level, yeah, top 10 level I don't see right now That she wasn't Tennis 128 was certainly something I expected to see. Um, You know, three-time Slam champion. Three? Four? No, three-time Slam champion, I believe, for Kerber. Obviously wins two of them within one season. But as you mentioned, it's ELO-centric. So what was it, that 2017 year? Must not have been what I remember it being.
1: No, it was one one great year, one pretty great year. And then the rest was fringy top 10, according to ELO. So, I mean, that's... That, that's a good record. I think she come, came in at about 140 if I ran the list deeper. So of, of players who you thought should go in that didn't, like she's near the top of that list. Um, but look, if, if you look at the year-to-year ELO numbers, it, it's tough to make the case. Like okay. There's not very many three slam winners who, who didn't make the tennis 128, but the ones who didn't, and Naomi, Naomi Osaka is in the same category here, are the ones who – who were only that good for a short time,
0: sure.
1: Uh, and I mean, Osaka, of course, could still like add a ton to her resume, but Kerber probably not. And it's just that if she had, even if she wasn't winning more slams, if she'd had a few more seasons in like, top five Elo, racked up some more of the Premier, Mandatories, that kind of tournaments, then she'd be there. Um, she just
0: missed though. No, it's the way Wozniacki, Halep may not have had as much top end success, but when they were at their best in their prime, it was always, dare I say, top eight top six, top four seasons. And again, those sorts of things add up over time. Last but not least, purely subjective for you. Do we scrap Davis Cup, Billie Jean King Cup, and just plant more United Cup style events throughout the course of the calendar? Because I'll tell you what, it was really thrilling. And I know they've adopted the 2-1 format, uh, excuse me, the best of three format for Davis Cup, Billie Jean King Cup as well. I love that sudden death doubles. I just, I think that's the best version of it, the heightened importance, how quick it moves. It is just thrilling in the truest sense of the word. I also loved seeing, again, the men and women competing side by side. I loved the mixed doubles final between Hubi, Iga, Sigamund, and Zverev. Like, that was really fun tennis. I think I lean no in asking this question, but United Cup was really, really fun to start the year. And I just, I wish we had more events like it littered through the calendar.
1: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I could do a solo podcast hour-long monologue on this question and maybe (laughs) I will. I don't know. You've been threatened. I'll start the Um, clock. Yeah. Uh, No, I have have so many thoughts and most of them are not fully baked. But (laughs) I mean, one thing is, First point is if you get the top players in the world to play an event, it doesn't really matter what it is or what the format is. It's going to be great. Like you could do worse than the United cup just did. No question. But if you get Iga and Djokovic and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if you get them all to show up in the same place, you're going to have a good event. I mean, that's the, that's the magic of the off season Like to me, they're totally freaking pointless, but then 30,000 people show up. Like, I, I, don't, I don't get it, but apparently if you put two famous players in the same place, then people are going to care. Put 20 famous players in the same place, then boom. So the format is secondary to getting top, top people to show up. I think you're right. The mixed doubles is great. Having doubles as a decider is great because people like watching it, but they don't like deciding to watch. I'm not sure if that's the best way to put it, but people are never going to think, unless you're like the, the, the watch more doubles people on Twitter, most people are never going to think, I got to make some time to watch some doubles. I wonder if there's some doubles on Tennis Channel right now. But most people if they end up stuck in front of a doubles match they enjoy it if they have a reason to watch it like it's deciding between their country and another country they're gonna love it so let's make that happen and the very fact that the format is so simple just basically two players on each team best of three i mean you can use different players but it's that straightforward whoever wins two matches wins fantastic i mean that that's a win I think the mistake and this is the same thing with United Cup, Davis Cup, Fed Cup, probably a bunch of other stuff too is round robins. I think round ro- even the 3 team round robin is horrible, even 4 team round robins. They're just any round robin where a wild card could get in or any of that crap, I don't get it. I don't have the energy to care what your rules are for who qualifies. What I get is Your team plays my team, and whoever wins more advances. Like I'm pretty smart, but I do not know what the exact rules of the United Cup were. I care about tennis a lot. I didn't care enough to figure that out. So same thing with Davis Cup and Fed Cup. I don't know exactly what the formats are for the new events. I don't know why it can't just be Team A, Team B, one of them advances. Everybody loses until you have one winner left at the end. Sudden death like it always has been. That was the magic of the old Davis Cup people waited for 2 months for you know Chile to play Finland and then they met and just threw it down for 3 days whoever won 3 matches won the other one went home for a year like that's that's magic everybody gets it people care cuz national pride is on the line you have a good a good crowd there that's excited because it's home and home and away it's magic if you can figure out how to replicate that the more you can do it at an event, the more successful your event will be, assuming, of course, you get top players to show up. And the more you complicate it, the more you have, like, wildcard teams getting in and three-team round robins and all that crap, you're making it more complicated. People don't know what they're rooting for or why. It's like Kasper Rudin, the Saudi exhibition, when he he won a point and thus lost the match for his team or whatever. Like, I know that doesn't really happen in a three-team round robin, but it feels like that. It's like, it should be you win and you advance, you lose and you go home. Done.
0: I love to hear it. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. I knew this would be a topic near and dear to your heart. I got nothing else for you, Jeff Sackman. Those are all of my week one overreactions. Do you have any other things you'd like to throw at the listeners? Any other plugs, by the way, they should be aware of? A schedule, perhaps, even for the Happy Top Spin blog? Oh, gosh. I'm not
1: willing to commit to that yet. No.
0: Um, <laughs> Good answer.
1: No. I mean, I do have a day job. So yeah, this is true. Yeah. Name and theory. a family
0: I, that I hear some parents like to take, you know, again, notice of. Yeah. Was, did you make him, do you remember what my kids' names are? I was hoping to, I just needed to get that from you again. Beatrice you know. and Bluto, right?
1: Yeah. That sounds, that sounds right. Simona. Is that one of them?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, no, arena. Uh, there's baby oh, arena, yeah. of course. And then, of course, and then young Jebediah, just because you like, you wanted to go old school. Was it Rutherford? Rutherford. You <laughs> wanted, to, yeah, to go full circle. Rutherford. B. No, you gave him yeah. just the B. Yeah, he's, just B. <laughs> he's B Sackman.
1: Yeah, so he'll spend he spend his life. Thinking, well, what's the story with that
0: B? Yeah, it's short for <laughs> Rutherford B. So, yeah, no, think, so you can, you We can don't have any. Ford. We don't have any J Edgars anymore. Like again, I don't know anyone in my life who's got a first initial and then a name, or where it's like you know E Chris, or you know again, dare I say R Jeff Jeffrey. You know, and it, it, this
1: is a random historical tidbit, but you know who G. Gordon Liddy is? The, he, sure. He used to be right wing commentary involving Watergate. Yes. So he was an F- FBI guy. Before, I mean, that's yeah. how he ended up yeah. in, embroiled in Watergate. So He goes by G Gordon Liddy. I don't even know if he's still alive, but he's famous as G Gordon Liddy. But his friends called him George. His friends at the FBI called him George because he went by George at the FBI because he thought it would look like he was sucking up if he showed up at the FBI. and like, Yes, I'm G Gordon, just like (laughs) J Edgar. So he introduced it. I think it was George was his first his first and he introduced himself as George. So that part of his life, he changed his name so he wouldn't be looking like he was sucking up to J Edgar.
0: It's good. I have a buddy, not to swap stories like this, but this is exactly where we should end because, again, full circle. My buddy, his whole life, his name's Benjamin Andrew Schwartz whole life went by Jamie just because that's, I don't know when it happened, but they found Jamie within Benjamin. So his whole life, he goes by Jamie, starts his real world job. And on his name tag, obviously, because his government name is Benjamin, it just always said Ben. So everyone at his workplace knows him as Ben. Flash forward, I used to just, I guess the tangent to this is because everyone called him Jamie, but his real name is Benjamin. When I used to get mad at him in college, I'd go, Benjamin, you know, again, I'd be like, you're acting like, Dude, you're acting like Benjamin right now. Like, where's Jamie? I need him back. By the way, Benjamin Andrew Schwartz, not Jewish, just a fun fact for everyone out there curious. Um, thus, he goes that by That was JP. the top thing on my mind. Well, I just, again, I know my listeners, um, so I know they're okay. thinking it. Um, but so, flash forward, we have a crossover event where he invites some friends from work, some friends from college. We were all home, so we go to his place, and one of his buddies goes, Hey, Ben. And like, he turns and he hadn't told us that he was going by Ben in the streets now. And I was like, hold on. Like, he called you Ben. And then I was like, I took notice. Like, first time it happened. It's like, okay, that's like, maybe this guy is in on the joke. Another one of his friends calls him Ben as well. And I immediately called a timeout, like TV timeout, full three minutes. And I had to be like, dude. Do you have a new name? I was like, are you – did you change your identity and you now are this Ben that we don't know? And he's like, yeah, I got a girlfriend. I bought a place. I'm, I'm a pilot now. I'm Ben. And I was like, that's crazy talking. So anyways. Well, believe it or not, I can, I can
1: bring this back to tennis. Today officially in the rankings on the ATV website, the artist formerly known as Shaklam Coleman Wong is now just Coleman.
0: Okay. I mean, Coleman Wong. He isn't just
1: going by one yeah, name. Yeah, but he's it's fun. just now Coleman he, he Wong. Oh, <laughs> he dropped the so, Wong yeah. too.
0: He's just no, no, <laughs> no. no.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's just he's just Coleman. Yeah. Uh, but no, he's he he he's he's westernized. Let's say he's going he's going for the big sponsorship money with the with the U.S. friendly name.
0: I did to truly go full circle because this is what we were talking about before the pod started. This was a bit I did with my brothers over and my family over the course of the holiday break. I was like, you guys, why am I not G. Alex Gruskin? Like, what if you guys just started calling me G. Alex? And I was like, it got good laughs. The exact chuckle you got, I think my dad got. <laughs> and we were at my uncle at one point. I'm not, I'll tell you the joke I made afterwards. But my uncle at one point looks, he's like, do you ever stop? And my dad was like, <laughs> was, my dad literally goes, you have no f- idea uh, So, I think that's a perfect place to end us, uh, today's pod. Jeff Sackman, it is always a pleasure to get the chance to chat with you. Be safe, be healthy, my friend, and look forward to having you more in our lives this year. Thank you very much. look forward to it, too. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis Abstract founder, our CR international correspondent, and dear friend Jeff Sackman. A thank you to him, as always, for taking the time to chat. Again, if you're not reading his content, you're not reading consuming everything available on his website, tennisabstract.com, you're just not doing fandom correctly because we have few, if any, better minds in our sport than Jeff. And the best part, all of his content available for free. So make sure you're going in support you're going and reading everything he's doing over at Tennis Abstract. I know how much that means to him and I know how much it means to me to have him as a contributor to this podcast. Certainly hoping to have more of him here in 2024. That said, we got plenty more content for all of you listeners this week. We're a week away from the start of the Australian Open qualifying getting set to get underway. Obviously, we've still got a few more tour level events this week in the build up to the year's first major as well. So, rest assured, we're locked and loaded, plenty of podcasts on the Horizon here at Cracked Rackets, whether it's on this podcast feed, the Great Shot podcast feed, or our Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Of course, the reason we can offer you all of those shows is because of the tireless efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who, as always, has a f of an amazing job to do day in, day out, making all this content possible. A thank you to him. A thank you as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for the fantastic Jeff Sack and our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all this year here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.